your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8 this morning. That's where we're going to be picking it up. We're in Matthew chapter 8. As you're turning there, uh, you should just know Matthew 8 is like a really involved chapter. Right? It's, it's like a busy chapter. There's a lot going on in there. Jesus, uh, he cleanses a leper. He, he heals a centurion servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And so it's just an involved chapter in this gospel. And where we're picking it up today, we're going to be in verse 23. So go ahead and get to 23. This is where the disciples and Jesus, they're out on the Sea of Galilee. They're out on this small fishing boat, and they're making their way across the sea. Jesus is tired. He's physically exhausted. That's part of his, part of his human nature as he came and dwelt among us, that he can get exhausted and physically tired. And, and they, are, they are in a storm. Uh, that's the scene where we find them. So if you're willing and able, would you stand with me now as we look together at God's word to us this morning. This is uh, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... We hear your word. We pray now that you would help us to understand it. Jesus, we need you to speak to us this morning. The person standing before your people is not capable, uh, and he is well aware of that. And so we need you. We need you to work in ways that we don't understand, ways that we can't comprehend, to bring your word to our hearts. And so I pray that you would do that for us here this morning. Jesus, speak to us that we might hear you. And we pray that in, in your name. Amen. You may be seated. As we've been uh, making our way through this uh, short series here during Advent, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, we haven't been just randomly jumping around and like cherry picking uh, pa- uh, fun passages to talk about. All right. And, and I don't want to do a complete review of the whole. Thing, but over the last couple of weeks, we've been in. We, so far, we've been in Matthew chapter two, right? And we talked about Jesus as the greater joy. And then last week, we were in Matthew chapter four, and we talked about Jesus as the as the greater light. And now, today, we're here in, in Matthew chapter eight, and and jumping a little further ahead, we um, we're looking at Jesus, and I've been looking forward to this one um, for about a year. But we're looking at Jesus as our greater calm. Um, and that's been the theme, right? So these aren't random groups of verses as we've jumped around. We've really been just chasing after a word in Matthew, a word that Matthew uses. We're following after and really pursuing his use of this specific word. And, and the reason we're doing this, right, the reason that we are chasing this word is because what we, I think what we all know about people, uh, regardless of place, regardless of time, really even regardless of stage of life and regardless of the resources that they have, uh, what we know about people is that we all share this sort of collective desire, this collective urge for 
for something greater. Like there's this restlessness in humanity. Everybody has it for something more, for something more. Sort of discontentment of the heart, that the, the sense that there's always something better out there. And that's why we're so good at turning almost anything in our lives into an idol, into an ultimate thing. We can take something very simple and turn it into to an idol. That's why, at least, at least part of why John Calvin famously said that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols, right? We can make anything at any moment into an ultimate thing. And so we're also always chasing something. We've always been following this word. This is what we've been doing as a people. We've been following this word in Matthew for the past couple of weeks. It's the word great. That's, that's the word. So we did a word study back in like October. What are we going to do for Advent? And with this motivation or this thought in mind, well, let's just see how Matthew uses that word great. The Greek word there is the word megas. It's where we get the English word mega. We use, and we use it to describe something very large. That's, that's, I mean, it's not complicated. When, when we use the word mega, we're talking about expressing something extreme, right? And so the mega rich are the extremely wealthy. That's how we think of them. Like this past week when a plumber reported finding $600,000 hidden in the wall of a mega rich mega church pastor in Houston. Uh, Yeah, that's not normal, by the way. That's, um, you can come poke all the holes in my walls you want. You're going to find those $600,000 in there. Anyway, uh, mega means a lot. That's what it means. All right. It means greater than. And so we've looked at Jesus as our greater joy. Over and above the despair and the sadness of our broken, fallen world. And we've looked at Jesus as the greater light. Over and above the darkness and ignorance of the human heart when it's left to its own devices. And today we're looking at Jesus as our greater calm. Over and above the storms. Over and above the ordinary chaos. Over and above the anxiety and the abiding and persistent unrest in our own hearts. And, if we can be honest, in in the world around us. And so before we do that, though, um, when we take a passage like this, one that's a little bit famous, it's in all of the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this, and so it's one of those sort of famous passages, and so before we do this, I want to take just a few minutes to understand what this passage is not teaching, okay? I tell people all the time, and especially in our sort of social media-driven uh, society where, where like true conversation, like true, honest, vulnerable conversation has become so lacking. By, by the way, that's, here's a shameless plug for our community groups. All right? One of the reasons we do community groups is because we believe that people in general have lost the ability to just talk with one another, to just have a conversation of substance without being deeply offended by every possible thing. And so that's, if you're not involved in one of those, let me encourage you, uh, consider getting involved in one of those, have those sort of we're trying to reclaim true vulnerability as honest, authentic people with each other. Anyway, we want to like counterculturally engage in real and open, honest conversations with people. But that's, that's not really in the passage. I'm just telling you that. Anyway, here, here's what I feel like I have to constantly tell people, and my kids can attest to this. We need to be careful not to hear something in this passage that God is not saying. I tell people all the time, please don't hear what I'm not saying. It's a shame that I feel we have to sort of like caveat a lot of conversations with that. So please don't hear what this passage is not saying, because that's the temptation. If you've been around the church a lot or listened to a lot of sermons, especially around Christmas time, there's, there's a solid chance that the way you've heard this message preached is that since Jesus calmed the storm on the sea that night with his disciples, Jesus will calm the storms in your life. 
Seeing as how Jesus has the divine authority over the wind and the waves, preachers are tempted to make an extravagant promise that in the same way Jesus will calm the storms in your life. Rough marriage? Take heart. Jesus is going to fix it. Disobedient, wayward, sort of prodigal child? Take heart. Jesus is going to fix that. Obnoxious boss? Losing team? Diet and exercise problems, house too small and falling apart. Take heart. Jesus is going to fix all of that for you. If he could calm that sea, he's going to do this in your life too. This is the message that is sold as the gospel message all too often. And the problem with that message is that it's like literally nowhere to be found in the Bible. And so at this point, this point uh, the point of this passage is not that Jesus is going to calm your storms. I need you to know that on the front end. Like the, the, the point of this, the point of Jesus going across this, being in the storm, the point is not that Jesus is going to calm your storms. It doesn't mean he won't, but that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage, and I'm giving it to you on the front end because it's going to be important that you remember this. The point of this passage is clearly and simply that Jesus is God. That's it. Like literally, I could sit down, and I'm not going to. I should probably, but that's it. That Jesus is God, I don't want you to miss this. The point of this passage is that unapologetically and unashamedly and absolutely Jesus is God. And so with that statement in mind, with that like absolute claim in your mind, let's look at this passage again. Look, at, look, at, look back at verse 23 with me. It says this, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now that's not abnormal. That's, that's what disciples do. All right, They follow their teacher. Getting into the boat was a pretty ordinary way of, of getting around uh, at that time. The terrain around the Sea of Galilee, you've probably heard this in the past, the ter- territory around that sea is very rocky, sort of mountainous, and so it would create this, this real issue in sort of traveling from town to town around the Sea of Galilee. And so it was not uncommon for them to use a little boat to get from one side of the sea to the other. And so they got in these boats. There's actually, they actually discovered one of these. It's pretty remarkable. You can Wikipedia this thing. It's pretty cool. There's a picture of it and everything. Discovered this boat that dates from the first century around the Sea of Galilee. I found it like encapsulated in mud and harvested that thing out of there. And you can see it. And so they, these boats are very typical of what Jesus would have been in, about 25 to 30 feet long, somewhere between seven and eight feet wide, and pretty shallow. So if you were like me when you were a kid and you heard Jesus out on the ship with his disciples, you probably thought like commercial fishing ship, and that's not what it is. All right. It's like literally a carved out boat. Kind of terrifying, if you, if you think. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, they got into these things. They discovered it back in the 80s. Go, ch- go check it out. It's fun. Wikipedia, that thing. And it says this in verse 24. There arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, that's Jesus now, was asleep. All right, so that's the scene that Matthew paints for us. That's what's happening in this moment. They're out there. The wind and the waves are getting rough. The boat is being swamped. I, I like how another translation says that the waves were breaking into the boat. It sort of gives you that idea that the waves are not staying out where they belong. They're coming into. They're swamping it. They're breaking into the boat. It's a bad scene. Like, it's a bad scene. Back on Thanksgiving, I was talking with my dad, and my dad loves, I think at this point in his life, he loves nothing more than being out on the water, right? Like, we just constantly, he goes out on the boat. He never goes to the coast without taking his boat with him. We're always like, where are you going to park that thing? He's like, I don't know. Anyway, 2021 has also been the year that my dad has discovered YouTube, all right? And it's like, I know he's late to the game 
for sure, all right? But he's, he's kind of gotten that, and so he knows how to get on his phone. He knows how to, like, look. Here's what he looks up. He looks up fishing and cooking videos. That's all he watches, and he loves it. We're a little worried, but we're hopeful he's going to make it through this initial year of, of YouTube. Anyway, we were talking about this particular inlet outside of Miami. Uh, people literally just sit out there with cameras every day making videos of people trying to get into and out of uh, this little man-made channel that they call Hallover Inlet, all right? And it's terrifying. People are constantly just submarining their boats in this thing. I mean, just this Joe Day Trader driving on his 50-foot boat and just sinking the thing. Mama's falling out. Mama's coming up and slapping it. Like, they are great videos of some serious domestic issues happening <laughs> because they'll get their spouses out there on the boat with them and go through this thing, and kids are flying out, and you see just Mama coming over the top. Like, just, I told you about this. And, there's, and by the way, if you have the time and you're near Miami, if you get a video camera, you can go out there and record this. Millions of people watch it, and YouTube will pay you for that junk. So just anyway, summer job, whatever. You're looking to make a little side hustle. That's maybe, maybe a way to go for it. The problem with the whole thing is that, and we all know this, that a boat is only useful, it's only fun, if the water stays out of the boat. Right? I mean, that's the only way that it remains fun. And the disciples here, I mean, this is the most obvious thing. They're not having any fun out on the sea that night. And more than that, they are terrified. And I, I, know, listen, I know we talk a lot about mental, uh, mental health and anxiety in the world. It has become good topics for us to talk about, and, and there are legitimate conversations we need to be having that we should be invested in and concerned about one another enough to, to love well through whatever, through whatever comes our way. And so we need to be sensitive to the burdens of others. But let, let me also say this. Um, when you're out to sea and the boat is starting to sink, like that's, that's, that is different than your difficult boss. That is, different, that, is, that is different than that obnoxious friend who gets on your nerves. That is different than you being frustrated by the perpetual mediocrity of your football team. All right? It is. It's different. It's different than the politician on the screen or the neighbor down the street or the influence on your phone, influencer on your phone not agreeing with every single thing that you want them to think. And I don't want to seem insensitive, but it is different. Like some of our anxiety today, we don't need to be anxious about. Like one of the things I've seen in the last two years is people use words like suffering and anxiety in dangerous ways. Because there are times when that's real. I'm not saying everybody's crying wolf, but these boys, they're in a position of being anxious. I said this in staff meeting, and I'm going to say it now because I think it'll make her laugh, all right? But I said, y'all, suffering is stupid. I, and I know that's insensitive. But so much of our... The, the, if you ever hear me complaining, just slap me, all right? And if I come to you with an oncology report that's like, you got stage four, you don't have to slap me then, all right? But if I come to you and you're like, man, this week was just really tough. I mean, our kid had a cold. Just right here. Just give me one of those. I mean, we've got an eight-year-old who's been sick three times in his entire life, and I complained about it nonstop this week to be like, oh, the poor kid, he just can't get over it. It's like, really? Really? Probably not worth all that. Anyway, that's not in the notes. i got to be careful going off the notes here. Um, the point is that when the disciples are out there on the boat and the waves are coming into it, they're terrified, and they have a legitimate reason to be. 
Like, it's going bad for them. And these were experienced guys. Like, they were used to being out on the water. At least four of them, at least four of them were professional fishermen before they became disciples. Because they know what they're doing. It wasn't like the day trader trying to get out of Hall over Inlet in a boat that he didn't know how to drive. These guys were at home on the water. And they were scared. Like, they were anxious. Like, death is a real possibility for them in this moment, in the chaos of it all, as the waves are breaking into the boat, if you can imagine that, you can hear them crying out. Here's what they cry out. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And so with what felt like the full force of nature against them, they woke him up. Something the wind and the waves had failed to do. And they say this, Jesus, we're about to die. In his commentary on this passage, R.C. Sproul makes a statement that the disciples certainly did a good and wise thing when they cried out to Jesus for rescue from the storm. I'm going to say that one more time because Jesus' response to them isn't going to, feel like he, isn't going to seem like he feels the same way about it. He says the disciples certainly did a good and wise thing when they cried out to Jesus for rescue from the storm. The point he's trying to make here is that this is what every single person that we know needs to do. Is that all of us should call out. If we could... We could summarize our great statement to the world. It's Jesus, save me. I'm in trouble. I'm not waving. I'm drowning. This is our true position in life. Oh, that we would call out to Jesus in our times of need instead of to Instagram stories. Now, some will see his response and be taken back. They're like, oh, that doesn't, like, Jesus doesn't seem real nice in this passage. Like, it's not really the moment for that talk. Like, that doesn't sound very Jesus-y. And, and, and at the very least, it can seem like he's being a little short with them. It's right there in verse 26. I, I like it. I, really, I do. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? All right, so maybe it does seem a little short. Before we get to Jesus, though, um, let's look at the disciples in the storm. Because one of the beautiful things we see here is that storms do have value. Like storms do bring a value into the life. And the first thing we see that storms do is they humble us. Storms make us small. They remind us of our vulnerability. Whether it's a storm in our marriage, whether it's a storm in our health, where they, they remind us of our vulnerability. Maybe it's an actual storm. Uh, like the one we saw crash through western Kentucky and Tennessee and Missouri this week. I mean, we are sitting here gathered together, and we are comfortable. I actually had to turn on the air conditioning this morning, which is a great thing. We've got enough people in here that the, air, that the, the, the building can't keep up with you. all It's great. We are all so comfortable in here. There are people this morning trying to dig loved ones out of piles of rubble. And so let's be careful with what our suffering looks like. So sometimes it is that type of storm. Just last night, we were on the way home from this we had a beautiful wedding that we were at, and, and it wasn't a tornado, or even like, like it wasn't a storm of some like historic proportion or anything, but the wind and the rain were raging as we were driving home, driving down the road. And it's humbling, right? As a dad trying to get his family home uh, and recognizing how little say that I have in the weather. It's humbling. It's, it's even, I mean, it's like it's even frightening. You know, you, you can't see clearly. You, you lose traction. People in Lexington can't drive to save their lives anyway. And here we are trying to get through that. It's like the disciples in the water. The environment around us changes. It demonstrates how little power, regardless of skill or talent, regardless of our focus, they show us 
how little control, how little say that we have in so many of the things that happen in our lives. And so storms humble us. And I guess if we call that the negative side of it, I don't... But they also, and here, here's something real about storms as well. Storms, storms also unite people. They humble us and they unite us. That humbling, you see, it's universal. Barbara Duguid has said this, pride keeps us isolated from others. But humility, see, humility brings us together. A flash of lightning, right? An ultrasound that, that reveals our worst hopes. A bad report from the oncologist. Even just a wrong turn, here, let me tell you, this is a short storm, but even just a wrong turn down a one-way street in Queens in New York City is a storm that can humble you. And yeah, that was me with my wife in the car. She didn't enjoy it at all. Um, there's a longer version of that story I'll tell you later. Um, every single soul in this room, here, here's what you need to know. Every single soul in this room has gotten the call at some point, has read the report, has heard the news, or been in the driver's seat when everything around them feels like it's blowing up. Every single person around you, all have that in common. Every single one of somebody like, well, my storm. Do me a favor, don't compare storms. Everybody here has had it at various times. We felt that. Every single one of us. I've seen this here over the last few years, though, and 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 it's an encouragement. It's an encouragement to me as, as individuals step into particular storms. I've seen how the body of Christ rallies around one another. I've seen what Paul talks about in, in 1 Corinthians 12 where he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. It's like when you sprain your right ankle. You ever had this happen? Like you sprain your right ankle and like two days later your left knee starts hurting real bad? Because your whole body has to adjust to that weakness, to that wound, to that, to that pain. The storms and wounds in life are never just limited to one Member. And so the storms have this tendency, it's a really profound and powerful thing, that the storms of our life have the tendency to unite us. Notice there in verse 25, and, and what I want you to notice is what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that they argued among themselves about the best course of action. Like it doesn't say, and we might expect this, it doesn't say that Peter really took control in this moment, started telling everybody what to do, barking out orders. Hey, you get on that side, you get on that side. Y'all, get the bucket, get to work. Like you can see Peter kind of, you don't, you don't hear that though. You don't see Andrew asking, whose fault is this? How did we get into this position? It's not like one of them was responsible for it. No, it says in verse 25 that they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And this is, the consistent, this is a consistent theme in the parallel accounts of this moment in the Gospels of Mark and Luke. At no point do we find them bickering. When everything goes bad, we don't find them fighting amongst themselves. At no point do we find them arguing. In the storm and in the humility that it brings, there's a unity. Oh, there's a true togetherness. We are in this together. You see, storms humble us, and in that, they unite us. And in that, there, here's the other thing, especially for the disciple of Jesus Christ, is that storms point us to Jesus. And like maybe that's the whole point of this experience for these disciples. Remember, just in Matthew, I want you to remember this. Just in Matthew, those men who are in that boat with Jesus have seen him cleanse a leper. All right, They stood by and watched as he took an uncurable disease and cured it. Now you could explain that away. Maybe Jesus is a good doctor. Right? Maybe he's just really gifted. He's ahead of his time. He figured out how to do it. 
But they had seen that. They, they saw, they stood by and watched as he healed a paralyzed Roman centurion servant with just a word. Just a word, just spoke it. Didn't even go see the guy. You remember that scene? The centurion comes and he's like, heal my paralyzed servant. He's like, okay, he's better. And the guy's like, thanks, I know what it will be because you have power. He did. He, that's a really bad paraphrase of that scene, by the way. Like, just tragically bad. Don't quote me on that one. Now, they've seen that happening. In just this passage, he went and touched, Jesus simply went and touched Peter's mother-in-law, who it said had been lying with a fever, lying sick with a fever. And what does it say? The fever left her. And they've heard him teach. They've seen and been moved by that. They've seen him heal, and they've been impressed by that. I mean, surely you see these things, and you go, okay, there's something different about this guy. But this is a totally different situation. I love the way Sproul summarizes this. He, sa- he describes this like from the perspective of the disciples towards Jesus. And he kind of has them saying, you're a fantastic teacher. And what you do with demons and with people who have leprosy is amazing. But this is different. This is a terrible storm. It's going to take us to the bottom of the lake. That's what they're saying. That's the claim underneath the cry. It's that you've done all these other things, but this you're incapable of doing. This one's too big for you, Jesus. Now you might understand why he calls him you of little faith. Right? Now he doesn't seem mean, he just seems right. That's why Jesus asked them, why are you afraid? He knows what they've seen. He knows what they've been around. Why are you afraid? It's because they've experienced the power of God in the flesh, and now they're here in the boat with God in the flesh, and they can't. They, in this moment, the fear has gripped them. They've fallen back into their humanity. But look what happens next. Look at the second part of verse 26. Matthew records that Jesus rose and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was a great calm. There was a mega calm. Over in Mark 4, 39, I love this. It's just a slightly different angle, like just a slightly different perspective on it. He records that Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, you've heard this before, what did he say? Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was, again, a great calm. Now, here, now here's why this happened. Look at verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Do you see what they're starting to understand? They're starting to understand, and this is what I hope all of us can grow to understand here in this church. They're beginning to understand that the one who is in the boat is the one who created the lake. They're beginning to understand that the one in the boat is the one who created the lake. They're beginning to understand the one telling the wind to get it together and calm down is the one who gave life to the wind in the beginning. Because listen, here, here's the thing. Have you ever thought about this? What if, what if the sea and the waves don't calm down? This is one of the greatest proofs, by the way, for the divinity of Jesus right here. This is that moment of truth. If he stands on the ship and tells the wind and the waves to calm down and it doesn't do it, if you're a disciple, you're kind of done at that point, right? Like now he's just a crazy guy. <laughs> like if I did that, everybody just sit down, put a life jacket on, bro. Like what are you doing? I mean, this is, this is a Hail Mary move on Jesus' part. If he's not God, this is the riskiest move you can make. He's telling the natural order what to do. 
Yeah, if he were just honest about it, if he tells the wind to stop blowing and it keeps blowing, those disciples are done following Jesus. So the fact that they marveled, that's what it says, that they marveled. That word for marveled, uh, we, we've kind of hijacked it a little bit. We've, we've neutered it. Or some of this. It means they were shocked. It means that they were in fear. To marvel at something is to stand in like, in fear and, and, and humility. They marveled. It's revealing that they're beginning to understand that something greater than the wind and the sea, something greater than the storm is right there with them in the middle of it. What sort of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Here's the answer. He's the Christ. He is the Lord of the wind and the sea. And he did not come into this world to drown with you. He came into this world to die for you. He came to save you. He is Emmanuel, right? God with us. That's what we call him. May we never forget that. Like he's not watching from the shore as you try to get out of the inlet. He's in the boat with you. He's with us. And here's the cool thing. The wind and the waves, they still know his voice. And so it's not a guarantee that Jesus is going to calm whatever storm is in your midst. It is an encouragement, though, that the one who can calm it is there with you in it. It's encouraging to me. Because the storms are going to come. Like they will. They came last night. They're going to come this year. They're going to come this afternoon. What a what a blessing it is that the God of all creation doesn't leave us to see how we manage it, but he steps into it with us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us to remember that you're present. You're not on alert, like you're not waiting for a call. And I think that's one of the, the problems that I often fall into with prayer is that is that I think I have to make the call for you to step in. But there's no bat phone to heaven, Lord. You're just always here. You're always present, tabernacling with us. Lord, help us to learn to cry out, Jesus, I'm perishing. Help us to learn to cry out, God, save me. Help us to learn to walk in faith through the storms that come, seeing as how they humble us, how they bring us together, and ultimately how they point us to you. Lord, if we can praise you for anything, it's that the storm points us to you. I pray that we'd be a people like that. I pray that I'd be a, that I'd be a man like that. I don't look forward to the storms, but Lord, help us to rejoice that you're there with us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.